Uh, my name is Josh. It's really good to see you this morning. My wife and I, uh, my wife Cynthia and I, are members here at In Town. Uh, I've been attending here for a number of years, and I'm currently a candidate for ministry in the uh, PCAR denomination. And so I get the great privilege of preaching here from time to time, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So what we're going to do is uh, read our passage this morning from Psalm 110. We're starting a new series called The Scandal of the Cross, which are going to be uh, the next few weeks, about the next month or so. There's nothing quite more central to what we believe as Christians than Jesus, God's Son, going to the cross and being offered up as the propitiation for our sins, the payment for our sins, and rising from the dead, victorious and ascending to heaven at the right hand of God, where he's still at work for us. And that's what we confess as Christians. And so we're going to be spending the next uh, series of weeks looking at why that is such a scandal um, and why it should push us out of our comfort zone a little bit. So we're going to start in kind of a weird spot with Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, a prophecy about Jesus, and figure out what we might have to learn about him from this very, very, very old poem. Uh, So if you would follow along with me in your bulletin, we're going to read the psalm. Uh, We're going to pray over it, ask God to help us, and then get started. Uh, This is uh, Psalm Psalm 110, and these are uh, the very words of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are truly coming from so many different places and and positions in life this morning. Some hurting, some confused, some overjoyed. For all of us, Lord, depending on the state of our heart, no matter what it is, I pray that your grace would be so crystal clear to us through the person of your Son and his work on our behalf. Lord, there's there's nothing we truly need more than to hear from you. So, uh, Father, I pray that by your Son and through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us by your word. We want to hear from you, we want to talk with you, and we want you to talk to us. So please come and speak uh, that we might be refreshed and renewed and reinvigorated for uh, the week and uh, weeks to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so excited to be in this psalm this morning. Uh, this psalm, it, it might seem surprising given some of, given some of the cryptic uh, verbiage of it, but this psalm is actually one of the most, if not 
the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, And so there's a lot here for us to uh, unpack and look at that might help us understand more of who Jesus is and and what he came for. Um, The big idea is this, that because Jesus is seated at God's right hand as a forever priest, we are called to willingly confess him as our only hope and future. Because of the nature of his session, because he sits quite literally at God's right hand, at Yahweh's right hand, we are called to willingly confess him as our only hope and future. So the big idea this morning is is willing confession. We're going to look at three parts. This psalm pretty naturally breaks into three sections. Verses 1 through 3 is the first one. We're going to say say that that's called your God reigns. Verse 4 kind of stands on its own. And so we're going to spend a good chunk of time there, a new sort of king. And then the last three verses, uh, we're going to basically use that to talk about what the future of God's people looks like. The fact that you have a future. So let's get started. Verse 1. What's the, the first thing we notice here at the beginning of the psalm? What's the first thing that happens? God speaks. Our God is a God who speaks. He spoke the world into existence. He spoke you into existence. He knit you together in your mother's womb. When Jesus comes, he's called the Word made flesh. He speaks from the cross. The early church preaches. Our God is a God who speaks. And we get this incredible glimpse into, think about it like this, almost a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. This divine commission between my Lord and my Lord. We don't see it too well in English, but in Hebrew it's Yahweh said to Adonai. So there's two distinct persons here. Yahweh and Adonai. This is kind of a poetic prophecy. And you can do in poetry, this is important, and I put a quote about this in the, in the beginning of the bulletin, you can do in poetry what you can't do in prose. Right? If you've ever read poetry before, you can, you can bend reality to your will. Think about it like this. Imagine looking out at a valley, and then beyond that valley is rolling hills, as far as the eye can see. If you were telling a story about those hills, you would talk about journeying around them. But in poetry, what you can do is you can take all those miles and miles and miles of expanse, and you can condense it down like an accordion, or like a zip drive, into seven verses. And that's what David does for us here. He looks out into the future of redemption and he sees the peaks of God's mighty work and he condenses them down for us into seven verses that we might dwell on and be encouraged by. The things that matter most. So it's kind of a powder keg. Um, Be careful not to light the fuse, I suppose. Um, What we have here is nothing less than the leaked screenplay, kind of the story told ahead of time. And so who are the characters? Well, we have... Two here right off the bat. We have God and his servant, my Lord and my Lord. There's a throne, there's a footstool. And just as easily as you would kick up your feet at home, my Lord puts his feet on the footstool of his enemies. But can we really say it's Jesus? I guess that's my first question for you. Are you, are you willing to say that this psalm is really about Jesus? Because his name's not anywhere on the page. And so that's a legitimate question to ask. Is this really messianic? Is it legitimate to say that this psalm, written almost a thousand years before Jesus was born, is actually about him? Well, let's, let's think about that for a minute. 
Um, I, be- I believe it is. I hope I'm in good company. And there's a couple, a couple of reasons why. Um, one of the reasons is its place in the Psalter. So, so follow with me here. The, the Psalter is the collection of Psalms in the Bible. There's about there are 150 of them. And there's a progression as you read through it. They're not just kind of scattered, but they're organized in such a way as to tell a story that has movement towards the future. And there's five books. You can kind of think of it like five volumes. Well, Psalm 110 is in the fifth book, which is the last one, which means that its place in the whole story really matters because it's already looking towards the future, what's to come. Earlier Psalms talk about the king, him being established, his kingdom, what a good king looks like, what happens when a king fails, what happens when that king is restored. And then here, we're already moving towards victory. Okay? So even David, in his mind, has the future to consider. Furthermore, within the Psalter, you have these divine kingship psalms. They're all about what the king is, but how he's really just an ambassador of the true heavenly king. And even those represent the same progression. And this is one of the last ones out of six. And it's moving towards the future. The fact that David writes it definitely has a lot to uh, teach us about its messianic qualities. And why is that? That's because David, if you're kind of new to Christianity or the Bible, David was the greatest king without exception in the Old Testament. Israel was never stronger than it was under him. And so if David is willing to say these sorts of things about the might and power of Yahweh's servant, which would be titles only reserved for him, certainly he has recognized the inadequacies of his own kingdom and is already looking for another to take his place. Furthermore, if you don't believe any of that, Jesus said it's about him. <laughs> In Matthew 22, you can go read that. Um, I just thought I might have, you know, save that for the end. Jesus said it's about him. When pressed explicitly, David spoke about me, he says. And then Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, um, some have argued, is about this specific psalm. In particular, chapter 7, if you want to do some reading this afternoon, I would, I would turn you to the book of Hebrews, chapters 1, 3, and 7. What's the point here? The point is that David didn't necessarily have to say Jesus for this to be about Jesus, right? Because why? Because there's a divine author behind the scenes who is giving David this vision of what is yet to come. And in fact, that author is the one who would come. He's writing about himself. And the Lord says to him, sit at my right hand. Have total dominion. Bring your enemies to nothing. Exercise that rule which is rightfully yours. What else does he say? What else, as we continue through here, uh, what I want to do is bring out some of the imagery here and then talk about Melchizedek in just a second because he matters. Well, what else does God say to his Messiah? Well, he tells him to rule with his scepter, uh, ancient symbol for dominion and, and unbreakable power. Sends him to conquer death. But then look at verse 3, the first part there. Your troops will be willing. Your people. Uh, This is where it starts to get a little personal for us. Your people will be willing. This word, it's a a word for a free will offering or or an an oblation, a sense of worship or 
devotion, a recognition of power that God's people, they're, they're willingly able to offer themselves to Him. And here it says, arrayed in holy majesty. Um, other translations kind of talk about the, the dress, the, the quality of the clothes that God's people are wearing. And the point is that they're dressed by God, they're spotless, without blemish. The only one who has dirty clothes is their leader. And it's just the corner of his robe. Revelation says that it's dipped in blood. But everyone else is pure. He is their champion. He's fighting their battles for them. Fighting your battles for you. What's next? Arrayed in holy splendor. This next one is, is a fascinating phrase. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Another way to say it, from the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. What in the world <laughs> does that even mean? Is that something we're just supposed to go, yeah, right on. What, what does that even mean? From the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. Let's look at this for a second. Uh, the people of God, when they're, when they're born again by faith, they're born as of the morning, like the sun rising over the desert or over, over the Mediterranean. There's nothing but light ahead. The, the Apostle Paul says that when we, when we turn to Jesus, we're transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. That's kind of the sense that you get here, that it's only light ahead for the people of God. And the king, this is the interesting part, the king, he shares that dawn, but he's taking part in another quality, like dew from the morning's womb, or the dew of your youth. It could be translated. That's actually a, a, a phrase in the ancient world and an expression for the, the strength um, and vigor of, of a young man uh, or young warrior. Kind of think, uh, think of it like this. You could, in English, it could be something like a young buck. Um, what's, what's with the dew? Well, in the, in the area surrounding Jerusalem, there was extreme fluctuations in temperature. And so from day to night, from hot to cold, about 250 days a year, that resulted in dew spreading and settling over the entire area around uh, Jerusalem and Gaza. And that is actually how the vegetation was sustained during the driest months when there was no rain. About 250 days a year, that dew would settle. So it was actually, uh, it, it was, uh, they depended on it so much that it was actually considered a blessing from God, and its absence was considered a curse for disobedience. Um, and kings were actually, just kings were compared um, to the blessing uh, and calmness of dew that would settle on the ground, like dew on the grass. So the image here is a king whose rule is not only absolute and pervasive, but he's young, he's, he's vigorous, he's virile, he's virtuous, he's noble, but he's good, and he's righteous, and he's leading his people. So they are as, as fresh as the hope of a new day, and this king, he's able to lead them with the strength and, and universality of dew that never, ever evaporates, it never dries up, it's always moist. A king who doesn't stop leading them when things don't go according to plan. And, and we all know that that phone call can come at any time that changes 
everything. So if, if you're hurting right now, or if you're dreading Monday, or if you're being pulled in, in a thousand different directions by your kids and, and your family, um, and the demands of, of a high-pressure job, this psalm, Psalm 110, can be your hope. Why? Because of the very first word, my. This is not an abstraction. David does not say, Lord and Lord. He says, my Lord. Said to, my Lord. It's so deeply personal. And there is hope for you there simply because of the first word, let alone what comes next my hope and my refuge. The same God who inspired David to condense all the peaks of redemption into these seven verses can pull them apart and he knows that there are no peaks without valleys and he can see you in the valley and he will leave 99 sheep aside to run down the hill and chase after you. Like Psalm 23 says, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He will walk there with you and he will set a table for you there to give you food and drink. He does not disregard you. He's not repelled by you. This morning, whatever your story, He's not disgusted by you, but He does pursue you and He loves you and He is good. And He will use that strength of the evening dew to have you for His own out of His love and kindness and compassion. My God. My Lord. So, you might not like what you see in the mirror Um, You might not count yourself among God's forces, um, but He sees you as you will one day be, pure, spotless, undefiled, all for the sake of Christ and His compassion towards you, fresh and calm as the morning light. That's what we ought to take away from, from those few verses. But the big question is how? That's all well and good, but how is this accomplished? It's just by a snap of God's fingers. How does he bring these things about in our lives? If the king is essentially writing and pleading for a better, stronger, truer, more righteous king, then we should probably take his advice and figure out who that is and and figure out what does this warrior priest look like. That phrase, warrior priest, um, all week, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Nacho Libre, warrior priest, I couldn't get I couldn't get that image of kind of a chubby Jack Black with stretchy pants under a monk robe out of my head. But he is. He's, he's a warrior priest. Because he's, he's a monk, but he's stuck working in the church. He hates it. And all he wants is to get Encarnacion, and he wants to be a luchador. He wants to be a wrestler. And so he's living this secret life where he's going to matches, he's buying stretchy pants, he's wearing the mask... And one of the kids sees him because he works in an orphanage. The kid's name is Chancho. Chancho sees him trying on his stretchy pants and he tells Chancho, sometimes a man wears stretchy pants. Um, he is a warrior priest. But it would be sin. Wrestling is sin, so he can't do it because the Bible, it says in the Bible, he says, that you shouldn't wrestle your neighbor. Um, but he ends up breaking his vows and he becomes a champion. Um, I don't think Jesus wore stretchy pants. Um, he wore a robe, obviously. Everyone, everyone knows this. And 
He had long flowing locks. Um, you should see the movie if you haven't seen it. It's, it's fantastic, as he says. Um, it's really good. So now that you have that image of a warrior priest in your mind, let's, let's try and uh, figure out what, what, is, what is God trying to say about this, this person, Melchizedek. He said that he's, he's sworn that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who is that? Who is that, that person? There's actually only a couple places in the Bible that name shows up. One is Genesis 14, one is here, and the rest are in Hebrews 7. Go and read about it. Um, we are not going to spend a ton of time here. I just want to tell you his story. Genesis 14 tells this story of Abraham going to rescue his nephew, Lot. And in order to rescue him, Lot's been captured by the king of Sodom. So Abraham goes to war against the king of Sodom. He's victorious. He gets Lot back. And then who meets him on the field of battle? Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. But in parentheses, it says that he's a priest of the Most High God. So he is the warrior priest. And what does he give to Abraham? You might not remember this story. He gives him bread and wine. And feeds him. Abraham pays tribute, and then he vanishes just as quickly as he appeared. The next time we hear about him is here, Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Jesus. That's Jesus who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's the big deal about a priest? Now, remember, even when this psalm was written, remember the Levitical system of sacrifices and priesthood. Remember the order, the sights, the smells, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of lambs. Why did that exist in the first place? It was so that the people's sin would be purified before God so the people could be acceptable to him. And so what took place day after day and year after year? The priests had to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, but it was never, ever, ever enough. It was never enough. There was always need for one more goat, a little more blood, one more bull, a little more blood, one more lamb. Hebrews says that without, the book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is this priest, that he is a priest whose ministry goes on forever. And he's a priest who goes on forever. All the other priests died. All the other priests died. But Jesus goes on forever. Why? Because his priesthood is not based on being from the right family. He's not of the right tribe. He's not from Levi. He's from Judah. The Judaites never got to be priests. So it's not about being from the right family. It's not about lineage. His ministry, his priesthood goes on forever. Why? The author of Hebrews says because of the power of an indestructible life, he is able to minister to you, his people, forever. He's indestructible. As our reading said, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But because he's been tempted in every way as we have, we can draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. He himself became the sacrifice. He was the last one. That the blood on his robe (laughs) 
tells us that. He would not see corruption. God would not let His Holy One see corruption, and yet He established Him as a priest who would endure for all time because of the power of His indestructible life. And Hebrews says, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He is always making intercession for them. Where? At the right hand of the Lord. Friends, what, what manner of man is this? That he is able to be king. That he is able to be priest. That he is able to sacrifice himself for the sake of his people. All of history, arguably the whole Psalter, turns on this verse. That the priesthood, even before it has fallen away, is falling away. And we're looking not just for a better king, but for a better priest. So what changes as a result of this verse is precisely your future. And now look at it with me, and, and we'll try and conclude here shortly. Uh, notice that verse 1 and 5 both mention a right hand. Would you look at that with me? Verse 1, sit at my right hand. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. What's the difference? What's the difference? In verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, that lowercase l is at the right hand of Yahweh. Verse 5, Adonai is at your right hand because he is your priest. Jesus is at your right hand. Jesus, he steps off of his heavenly seat. He takes his feet off of the footstool and he comes near you. He comes to your right hand. But he doesn't come with a scepter. He doesn't come to crush you, not to shatter you, but to take up residence at your side. And now what we see in, in the rest of this psalm, it brings our fallen condition into focus because we see the distinction between the first half and the second half. In the first half, God's people, they willingly follow. In the second half of this psalm here, the Lord has stepped off of his stool in order to wipe out and vanquish evil once and for all. There's a body count. Shattered kings. Judgment rendered. It's a kind of a precursor to what we see. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Right? These are the tongues that haven't confessed. But what about the warrior priest? Does he just get the job done and kind of ride off into the sunset? Like in a western, you know, the cowboy, he rides into town. No one really knows where he came from. He's got lots of secrets, lots of baggage, but he doesn't really want to talk about it. But he gets the girl and plays the hero, and then he kind of rides off into the sunset, and there's like young children just like calling out to him for him to come back. He stays by your side. And then the last verse, he leads you by still waters. There's a river there. He will drink from the brook, along the way, and so he will lift his head high. You don't drink from a brook in the middle of warfare, right? So remember we said this is all looking forward. Only at victory will you take this kind of drink from a brook, from still waters. But there's, some, there's something more here. Think about this with me. What was one of the last things that happened to Jesus on the cross before he died. 
What was one of, one of the last things that Jesus did on the cross before he died? He got thirsty, right? Do you remember this? I thirst. So it, two words. Be thirsty. The Gospel of John says that he said, I thirst. He was given a, a sponge of sour wine and then he lowered his head and gave up the spirit. Friends, so heavy was the judgment of God on his shoulders for you and for me. And let's, let's look at this psalm from that perspective. Who was actually crushed? His was the body piled in the grave. He is the king whose head was crushed with a crown of thorns. Even as he was at our right hand, judgment was executed against him, and he took it joyfully. He endured it joyfully on our behalf. And the beauty of this poem is that David sees beyond the cross. Remember, we're talking about the scandal of the cross. Well, David sees far beyond that. He sees his Savior. He sees Jesus. Not thirsting and lowering his head, but he's thirsty yet again, and he takes a step down to drink. And to drink deeply in victory, refreshed by the stream, ready to press on once more. And then back to verse 1, and then he sits down. Priests don't get to sit down. There are no chairs in the temple. You can read the schematics of the temple in the Old Testament. You will not find a chair mentioned once. Why? Because the job's never done. They don't get to sit down. But Jesus, he's the sort of priest that gets to sit down because it was truly finished on the cross. This is why when we get to the book of Acts, the the apostles, when they start preaching, they don't just talk about God's love. They don't talk about Jesus who lived. They don't talk about Jesus who died. They keep saying, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, this particular person, this one man who came and did something, this Christ, you crucified. He was delivered up by the hands of lawless men. That's what this psalm is about. My Lord said to my Lord, this deeply personal, willing confession, this Christ, this one Jesus. Truly it is finished. And the greatest joy of all is that he doesn't stay dead. And so often we stop at the cross and we fail to get to the resurrection. We fail to get to his ascension and his, his royal session, which is what this psalm actually gets to. It doesn't even stop at the cross, but it goes far beyond it. And now his work continues through his Holy Spirit, through his word, and through you. And so, this week when you're thirsty, when your soul is dry, maybe when that phone call comes, there is a stream, friends, that never runs dry. So be encouraged this morning. Uh, that Jesus drank and he was satisfied. He didn't stay thirsty forever. Um, And I hope you are able to drink deeply from that same well in your time of need. A couple points of application here. And and then we'll pray. Um, In light of the gospel, the full assurance that, that Jesus has met all the requirements of the law that once were yours, and now he has set those aside, um, I want to ask a couple questions uh, just so we can see how this might work out in our lives. Um, as I said, a common refrain in the Bible is this Jesus, my Lord, my God, this, this particular person, it's particular and personal. Um, how does this psalm maybe challenge you to think of Jesus 
in maybe a different way than you have before, or to confess him more willingly in personal ways as mine, as yours. Uh, Secondly, how has Jesus or his people disappointed you? How has Jesus or his people disappointed you? And how does this psalm challenge you to be satisfied in Jesus alone and what he's done? And lastly, what does this psalm challenge you to do out of love for Christ and his people? So, something to believe, something to feel, and something to do. What does this psalm challenge you to do out of love for Christ and his people? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for renewing us through your word. Thank you that since ancient days you have been sending priests to feed us and to quench our thirst. Heavenly Father, thank you that once and for all you sent a final priest to come and intercede for us, to come and sit next to us, to be at our right hand, to strengthen us, and serve us. Lord, I know many this morning are far from you. Many of us feel the, the dryness of, of spirit where we're not really sure what we believe. But God, I, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit would be our comfort, would be our encourager, that we wouldn't lose faith merely because our faith is weak, but that we would trust in the strength of the object of our faith, your Son, that because He is strong, our frailty is nothing to you. Lord, strengthen your people, encourage them, lift our spirits to worship you and praise you this week as we go about our business. And I just pray that we would come together um, again in the future refreshed and renewed and ready to love and serve one another in your world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.